3: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'd like to remind you each and every week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, Uh, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And if you are interested in Chen's newsletter, uh, keep in mind that uh, there will be a window of opportunity to sign up for that letter uh, during the first 10 business days of the new year. Uh, you need to put your name on a waiting list prior to that and then uh, depending on how many uh, opening spots there are, Chen will be taking new subscribers at the beginning of uh, the next quarter. He he does that quarterly. Uh, each calendar quarter, uh, first 10 days, he takes new subscribers. You can sign up for my newsletter anytime though. And you can go to miningstocks.com for that, miningstocks.com, sign up for my newsletter, or uh, go uh, sign up for Chen that way, or you can call my assistant in New York, Claudio Bossi, during the regular work hours at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. I'd like to remind you that you can follow everything I do, including accessing this radio show at Media. That's j-a-y-t-a-y-l-o-r media.com, and you can also follow me on Twitter, under the handle J Taylor Media. Just uh want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Nanostruck Technologies, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp. Columbus Gold and Golden Arrow Resources and uh, nanostruck technologies uh, selling at about eleven cents eight point six million dollar cap has recently added i think some important management personnel uh, paramount gold and silver uh, just announced that uh... they are resuming the drilling at their san miguel project this is a company that has between two different properties something just under ten million ounces of gold gold equivalent ounces a very substantial company uh... columbus gold and we're going to be talking to robert Justra a little later today the ceo of this company uh, it has selling at 30 cents, 36 million dollar market cap. Uh, and uh, a very exciting company, as you'll hear, they are now uh, starting a phase two drilling on their Paul Isnard property. Has over 5 million ounces of gold, and they just have a new joint venture partner that I believe is going to make this company uh and that project happened in which case this will not be a 30 cent stock in my view also golden arrow is another sponsor uh at 19 cents uh, the company uh, talked to is uh, is talking about buying back some of the shares um th- it's a company that has a very substantial silver deposit uh on the border of argent in argentina on the border of chile um I have a question for you, and this is uh, something that I've been thinking about lately in view of some of the information that's been flowing uh, concerning Chinese purchases of gold, but also not only gold, but they are becoming very much involved in the oil industry and in securing substantial amounts of oil from various places around the world. There's a very interesting article on Reuters last week that brought sort of brought this to my attention. Uh, the article noted that China has secured as much as 90% of Ecuador's future oil production that's 360,000 barrels of uh oil a day for a mere 6 billion dollars. But the Reuters article also pointed out that Ecuador is just one country in many that China is presumably making loans that it is making loans to uh that oil companies oil countries I should say oil producing countries that China is making loans to uh of upwards of 121 billion dollars, Russia 55 billion, Venezuela 43 billion, Angola 13 billion, Brazil 10 billion. And one wonders that if a mere $6 billion can buy 90% of 360,000 barrels of oil from Ecuador, how much does $121 billion buy? Uh, So what does this mean for the United States, for people, those of us living here in the U.S. and the Western world? Well, first, I think it will likely mean uh, higher oil prices, all other things being equal. Uh, as a major amount of the global oil supply is being taken off the markets, uh, but it also might be bullish for oil refiners uh, in uh, those that use it, rely on lower cost sources like West Texas Intermediate. Uh, so companies that are refining oil into gasoline might benefit from this, and of course, also with higher pr- uh, prices, the oil producers, oil uh, oil companies, should benefit from it. But there are at least. Um, There's at least one high-dividend company that I cover uh, in my newsletter that I will be talking about uh, that should benefit from higher uh, oil prices and low WTI. But this is a story, I think, that is much bigger than just the uh, issue of higher oil prices and increased refining margins for U.S. uh, refiners. The bigger picture here, I believe, has to do with the growing economic power of China and its ambitions to have a gold-backed yuan become the world's reserve currency over time. China has already started to quote gold internally, not in U.S. dollars, but in Yuan, uh, and that is the gold that's trading in Shanghai. Now there is every reason to believe that China may be preparing to start trading oil denominated in Yuan as well, and its ability to source oil directly from these various countries that I just named certainly would seem to make that more likely. Now, if that happens, some people are suggesting that a simple arbitrage could easily take place in which the oil countries sell their oil in yuan and then switch the proceeds of that sale into uh, not into paper gold but into uh, gold bullion. Uh, And it would do that through the Shanghai market, where it is possible to do it. Unlike the uh, the London and uh, and the London and New York exchanges, where about a hundred, almost ninety nine percent of all the trades are in paper, sort of almost fraudulent trading that's going on there. Some people believe manipulation of the gold markets. Well, why? Why would oil oil exporting countries do that? Why would they want to switch uh, their proceeds in yuan into gold instead of uh, uh, keeping them in yuan? Well, because they would know that while the the yuan can be printed just like the dollar can be printed, gold cannot be printed. It's very, very difficult to win gold from the earth. It's not very difficult to increase the money supply as we see with quantitative eating easing endlessly from the Federal Reserve. Um, and, and they would also know, though, that they could actually get their physical gold from the Shanghai market, unlike the New York market and the London market. So what might this mean for the price of gold? Well, I'm suggesting that keep in mind that the oil markets are very, very substantial in size relative to the gold market. So if you started to have this sort of trade taking place where people would take their yuan, uh, the yuan they, they uh, won for selling oil and trading it into gold, I think it could have a very substantial increase uh, in the price of gold. It might also have some major implications for global trade longer term as well because ever since 1971 the United States has been able to print dollars and use those dollars to buy uh, manufactured goods from around the world. Well, it was quite a deal while it lasted. The United States could just print money and use that print- printing press money to go buy things around the world. Well that could change if the yuan starts to gain substance and if the dollar starts to lose its status. It actually is losing its status as a world's reserve currency gradually. The question is how long, how much longer will the United States be able to pull pull this off, continue to print money uh, and to um, uh, and to buy goods and services. Well, I think there there are some signs uh, that this is just one thing to keep your eye on. China uh, being securing large amounts of oil from around the world. Uh, and uh, and the Shanghai exchange, uh, the gold exchange, if they start trading uh, oil and denominating it in, in, in yuan, uh, it's not hard for me to see that sort of arbitrage taking place. And if it does, I think it could be extremely bullish uh, for the gold markets. Now, of course, as it is right now, uh, gold continues to suffer substantially. Uh, and uh, But I, I do believe, given uh, the problems that we're seeing, that debt is continuing to grow much more rapidly than GDP, that ultimately uh, gold is going to be the place to be. It's hard to feel that way right now because we've been in a bear market, a two-year bear market, and it's been very difficult for the junior gold shares, that's for sure. Well, let's just uh, talk a little bit about what today's show is about. For the first time, we're going to have uh, an attorney, Clark Neely and um, Robert Giustra, Uh, Clark Neely is an attorney. He's going to be joining us. Uh, Robert Juster is the CEO uh, of Columbus Gold, which I noted uh, a few minutes ago. And then Peter Grandich is going to be uh, returning to us as well today. Uh, But uh, Clark Neely um, is the author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce uh, the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. He'll tell us how government is removing liberty, property rights, school rights, First Amendment, and other constitutional rights, How the government is taking that away from us, and we'll want to ask him uh, about how we might uh, try to get those rights back as Americans. But uh, also, I want to ask him, really, uh, I want to talk to him about uh, honest money and what he thinks the Constitution has to say about fiat money and about the institution of the Federal Reserve as well. Uh, Certainly, the debasement of our monetary system is not only funding government power, And abuse, but also along with corporate domination of our legislative body, it is destroying, I think, our economy very definitely with the fiat money and the malinvestment that results from huge amounts of money created out of nothing. In light of massive economic problems, uh, I want to talk to Peter Grandich and find out how he thinks uh, we should be investing our money these days. Uh, given the mess that our economy is apparently in. Gene Epstein is going to be with me uh, in the second hour of today's show uh, at about 4.30 New York time. Gene will be with me uh, to talk about the upcoming New York City Junto this Thursday and the guest that's going to be there. And Gene also wants to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and uh, compare Bitcoin with gold. And I want to ask Gene if he knows anything about gold money, my friend James Turk's uh, uh, company, uh, goldmoney.com, and uh, see uh, what Gene has to say about that. Well, we do have to uh, go to break here in just a minute uh, or so. And when we come back, uh, we 're going to be talking to Robert Juster, the CEO of columbus gold it 's a company that 's selling for pennies, but you know it is a company that I have recommended in my newsletter it 's a company that I own personally. They are a sponsor to this uh, to this show as well. but uh, you know now is the time I believe when you can look around and selectively pick up some real gems in the junior gold share sector. And Columbus Gold is one that I, I feel very firmly is going to be a success story, especially since they recently brought on a new partner, uh, a partner that is uh, an aggressive gold producer and a very sizable one at that. And uh, they are wasting no time in moving forward uh, on the project uh, in French Guyana. So we are going to go to break now. And when we come back, uh, we'll ask Robert Juster to tell us more about Columbus Gold. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
2: Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in Gold and silver exploration.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
3: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have with me for the first time Robert Schustra. He is the president and CEO of Columbus Gold. Uh, this is a company that I have been following for oh, at least a couple of years now, and it's one that I think uh, has got great prospects. It's traded uh, on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol CGT. You can buy it in the United States, as I have, under the symbol CBGDF. Uh, earlier today, it was selling at about $0.30. Cents. There's 121 million shares. outstanding, giving it a market cap of around $36 million. Before we get started, I should uh, like to tell my listeners that I have well, I guess I just did tell you that I've purchased the shares. Uh, it is a recommendation in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, and as I said, it's also a partner. Uh, excuse me. A, um, uh, it is also um, uh, helping us along here uh, as um, I'm looking for the word. What do we call a sponsor? I'm sorry. Uh, Columbus Gold is a sponsor of this show. And for that, we want to thank and welcome uh Robert Justra to, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Good to have you, Robert. Okay. You know, um, we we talked about this. I, I first met up with you oh at least two years ago and, uh, you know, things were a lot better in those days, uh, a lot easier, at least for junior mining companies. The share prices were up. We're, we're suffering through one, I think, one of the most difficult periods of time that I have seen in a long, long time. But on the other hand, pe- for people that have ma- managed to retain some cash, now is an extraordinarily good time, I think. And I, I really, I really like your, your project, the Paul Isnard uh, project. It's in French Guiana. Uh, And as I understand it, it, this is a relatively high-grade deposit because uh, I believe that I saw somewhere if you use a one-gram cutoff, you've got something like uh, 2.2 grams per ton gold, and you've got overall something like 5.37 million ounces of gold on the deposit. Do I have those numbers right?
1: Um, You're partly right. It it is a 5 million ounce deposit at a .3 cutoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, using a one-gram cutoff, uh, it becomes a little over 4 million ounces, so it, it responds mm-hmm. you know, very well to uh, different grades, sure. uh, different
3: cutoffs, uh, and that gives you a grade of 2.2 grams per ton using okay. a one-gram cutoff. Well, that's that's quite a, uh, I mean, for this day and age, uh, that's quite a, a strong uh, grade for an open pit mine in most cases. That's not to say uh, that doesn't automatically make this a, a profitable operation, but nonetheless, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good grade, isn't it, for open pit these days?
1: Well, when you consider they're mining uh, less than a gram in many parts of the world, it's considered pretty good. It yeah. uh, definitely is uh, one of the better grade deposits
3: uh, owned by a junior mining company at this time in the business. Indeed. And, and so on the 5.37 million ounces, if you use a 0.3 cutoff, what is the grade on that then? The average uh, the grade rate. is 1.47, which, frankly, is is also pretty
1: good. Um, yeah, exactly. In comparison to our right. peers.
3: Right. Well, what can you tell our listeners about the uh, the economic prospects of this project? I know you've got a lot of work to do yet, and you started uh, with your joint venture partner. When I want to ask you about them as well. But what, have you done any scoping studies or anything on this yet, Robert?
1: We, we haven't. We've just started that process. Um, if uh, your listeners follow the company, they would have seen our press release a few weeks ago, Mm-hmm. announcing a very aggressive uh, exploration and development program. And I, I think development is the key word there. Uh, we've announced we're very committed to uh, having a uh, PEA, Preliminary Economic Assessment, uh, in, within the next three years. And so we're aggressively working towards that, having
3: started a drill program just last week. All right. Now, the uh, Paul Isnerd project is in French Guiana. Um, it's a country we don't hear too much about in the United States. Uh, but uh, what can you tell us about that country? What about its its laws? Its uh, its customs? How how is it with? I mean, I don't know of too many companies that have mined down there. So, can you tell us something about the country?
1: Well, it's it's in a geological formation you you've heard of and you know quite well, Jay, called the Guyana sure. Shield. Sure. And uh they're related to the, the same type of geology just across the Atlantic and West Africa. Uh politically, French Guyana is part of France. Um that uh that comes with some pros and some cons. Uh the the, the pros are what we like and uh those include there's security of tenure. Um uh, part of the problem in our business, Jay, as you know, is that many of the great deposits that are found these days are in uh developing countries um, where the the laws uh, and the political system is not very favorable well this deposit is in uh is is in France french guyana i'd say mm-hmm. as i compare it to hawaii um, relative to the united states so french guyana politically is fully integrated into france mm-hmm. so there's yeah. there is security of tenure there very... uh you know you don't own it uh, today and then a general comes along and takes it away from you sure there's a there's a legal system that works it, it is a a western country after all mm-hmm. um uh, and there isn't corruption in the third world sense which is a big problem in many parts of the world um where people constantly have their hands out or every time there's a change of government they're trying to change a deal on you um, we could probably make a long list of juniors, Jay, you and I, uh, that have been affected by all these things that didn't have these types of protections over the years. So we're very encouraged by the p-
3: political jurisdiction we're operating in. Yeah, for sure. The uh, property rights and the and the rule of law. Which is, uh, which is so important, obviously. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that is, that is not a small issue, uh, especially these days. We've seen recently a lot, a lot more concern than a few years ago about, uh, about the, uh, the ability to continue operating without having it confiscated or largely taken away from you. A very important issue. Uh, well, you know, what I think, um, you're a 30 cent stock in my view. In my view, sort of what I'm looking at uh, with the kind of deposit you have, if things work out, the economics are good, that you have a chance to see a 10 bagger from this, from these levels. And, you know, I mean, I'm, you're not going to say that. Nobody can say that anything is for sure in this business. But as I look at what you've got there, uh, and one of the reasons that I feel more confident than I did even six months ago or a year ago when the gold price was higher and when these shares were higher is that you've brought in a partner, Nord Gold. Uh, tell our listeners about Nordgold because I don't think it's a, a, a company that many people are familiar with. What can you tell us about Nordgold, and and perhaps tell us about your uh, your agreement with Nordgold there at the Paul Isnard project? Okay,
1: well I'll, I'll I'll um I'll answer that question by first um, stating that most of the major mining companies uh, that are gold miners uh, express an interest in Paul Isnard. and some, as you know, move faster than others. Uh, some take two months just to sign a confidentiality agreement. Uh, and Some are more notorious than others in being very slow, Jay. We're not going to mention any names here. So we were very encouraged uh, in um, completing an agreement with Nordgold uh, after looking into their background. Uh, in, and it's rather remarkable. In 2006, they didn't even exist. Uh, they uh, were spun out from a steel company that had a gold asset, and that steel company is Severstal in Russia. It's a top 10 steel producer in the world, and they spun this gold asset uh, into uh, a new company. It wasn't a producing asset. It was an exploration play, and uh, decided that they wanted to be a major player in the gold business. Um, Over the next seven years to to, to the present, they uh, acquired uh, eight assets, um, either directly or by acquiring companies like Columbus Gold. uh, And today they produce 800,000 ounces of gold they have over a billion dollars in revenue uh, one of their uh, one of their mines was uh, developed uh, organically and they put it into production in January of this year it took them 15 months to build the mine and wow. they're projecting over 200,000 ounces of production from it this year and it's in Burkina Faso in very similar geology in a French speaking country in West Africa Mm. so they're they're about as aggressive as it gets for a oh. uh you know for I I'd, I'd describe them as an intermediate gold producer about to become a million plus gold
3: producer in the next year yeah fifteen months to build a mine is unheard of i mean i I don't care what country you're operating in so that that is pretty remarkable i, I must say and and uh you know it's not yet i would say in America a household name, but I certainly would become one uh, I would guess uh going forward. Well, so uh, so your agreement with Nord then is uh, uh, what is the arrangement there? The um, the agreement is very
1: unconventional for the industry. Um, uh, we've uh, uh, we've entered into uh, an arrangement that requires them to spend all of the money to advance the project to a bankable feasibility study in a very aggressive time frame of uh, of three years and two months have already passed. Um, during that period, they have to spend a minimum of thirty million. We suspect it'll be closer to forty or fifty million to produce a feasibility study. And what's unconventional? There's nothing unconventional about that, Jay, as you know. But what what is unconventional about it is what they get in return. They'll only get half the asset for advancing it to that stage and spending all that money. Mm-hmm. So that will leave us a uh, Columbus Gold with um, about a fifty percent interest uh, in a mine at the bankable feasibility stage which gives us the option uh along with nordgold to 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 fund mine construction uh, and and own half the deposit and we don't and half a producing mine and we don't have to produce uh or we don't have to spend any of our own money in this process and in fact uh we collect an administration fee of 10% on all the money it's spent Mm-hmm. So, over the next several years, we'll be collecting 3 to $5 million in admin fees, which mm-hmm. will
3: cover all of our overheads. Oh, that's very important in these days when your stock is selling at 30 cents. Um, Precisely. Yeah, and, and a more typical arrangement would be something like a 70 30 or something like or 75 25 or something like that. It would seem to be more typical with, a lot of, with companies of this stature.
1: Very, very typical. Generally, the um, the company that is diluting out, that's brought in the major partner, will end up with twenty, twenty-five. At very best, you might see thirty percent, and um, that it's very difficult to fund to go to a bank and uh, and fund mine construction when you only own twenty-five percent of something. In fact, it's almost impossible. So what generally happens at that stage is um, the 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 smaller company gets diluted down to a a royalty interest, which is not bad. um, But I think you're better off having a large equity interest in a producing mine.
3: Well, you, uh, I just caught the the news release that uh, well, I guess it went out on uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that you're starting a twenty seven thousand six hundred meter drill program at polyasnard, And of course, as you, as you mentioned, this is being funded by NORD Gold. But what is the purpose of this? Uh, what, what is the intent of this program?
1: The deposit as it currently sits is under drilled, Jay. It's 5.4 million ounces. It sounds big, it is, but it's going to get yeah. much bigger. So the uh, objective of that drill program is to fill in very wide gaps between holes within the existing envelope of the deposit. And what that will do is um, add ounces, but it's also going to increase the confidence level mm-hmm. uh, of the deposit itself, um, raising it from a, uh, an inferred category into what we call indicated and measured. So, where we expect to be by the end of next year is that uh, by well by mid next year that program will be complete. There'll be a resource update probably in the fall. Um, we expect to see more ounces. Uh, and a, a much higher degree of confidence, and uh, we think that will be reflected in our market
3: cap. And then from there, you can take that information and start a PEA? Well,
1: the PEA, the target for the PEA is, that's one component of the PEA, mm-hmm. but the target is to have it done by the end of next year. Mm-hmm. So that implies uh, initiating metallurgical studies uh, and mm-hmm. baseline environmental studies, which have already gotten underway.
3: What about the infrastructure in a place like that? Do you're going to have to rely on diesel, or is there some power that's going in to the site? It's too early to say at the stage. That will mm-hmm. be part of the PEA study. Sure. Uh,
1: there certainly is, um, uh, uh, you know, good access, which is part very important part of infrastructure. And generally, in this part of the world, as you know, uh, access is not that good. But our project uh, is an exception. Um you could uh, drive from the port, the main port uh in French Guyana to the deposit. It's about a hundred kilometers along an existing uh forest uh forest road. And that's considered pretty good access for that part of the world. Sure. It really is too early to comment on um on power and those things at this mm-hmm. stage. Um uh, mm-hmm. but the there presently is power, obviously, um only a hundred kilometers away mm-hmm. along an existing road.
3: Mm-hmm yeah it it is early so i guess we're looking at um well we should should have uh, an updated resource and uh and and these these projects take time for sure uh, but um you, you got to keep watching as the pieces of the puzzle are filled in to get a picture of where you're at all i can say is that for a project with uh, 5.4 million ounces a, a market cap of 30 million dollars or something seems pretty remarkable and i know there's so many uncertainties and and people are bearish uh, on the gold market now, it's very very difficult. Uh, I don't need to tell you. Uh, I'm sure, you know, one of the one of your considerations in uh, in gaining your joint venture partnership with Nordgold was the the current market conditions. But uh, and you indicated that you're going to be getting some uh, some payments for the work that you're doing on the property, which is very helpful as well. What do you have? How much money do you have in the till right now? We presently
1: have about $6 million, which is, which is plenty when you're not spending your own money and collecting mm-hmm. revenue. Mm-hmm. So we're not anticipating
3: dilution from
1: financing uh, anytime soon.
3: And one, one more question before we let you go. I know that you have other properties as well. I mean, by far, the Paul Isnard is your primary focus. But I noticed you are doing some drilling on a project in uh, Nevada. Could you just take maybe 30 seconds to tell us something about that? Sure. Uh,
1: we have a portfolio of 19 properties in Nevada. They're mostly uh, early stage. Mm-hmm. Two of those projects, Bolo and Eastside, have, um, uh, have uh, given us some very good results from drilling in the last several months. Eastside in particular is very interesting to us. Uh, the grade is very good. Uh, it's plus 2 grams. Uh, it's 20 miles from the mining town of Tonopah. It's mm. 6 miles from uh, a paved highway between Reno and Las Vegas. Uh, there's plenty of water. Um, it's sparsely vegetated. Uh, in a nutshell, if you're going to find a gold mine, it's it's about as good as it gets. And we're very encouraged by the results to date. And in fact, we've uh, we've started a phase two drill program, which is currently underway.
3: Might you be looking for a joint venture partner, someone to earn in on that, or are you going to try to progress that further yourself? Uh, I won't comment at this stage. I think we need okay. to take it a bit further ourselves, and, and mm-hmm. then reevaluate. All right, Robert. We're basically out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? Yeah, I guess maybe, your website. Maybe in, clo- they should-
1: maybe in some closing remarks, Jay, if I may, for 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, sure, um, sure, There is perhaps 10 junior mining companies on the planet that have a, a, a gold deposit this large.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, um, we all know how difficult the mining market has been in the last three years. Uh, but I can say uh, definitively, that um, i i feel that uh it it is bottomed out and i say that because we're getting phone calls investors are calling hedge funds are taking meetings 8 months ago they wouldn't take meetings uh, if i booked a roadshow in toronto 8 months ago we wouldn't have got one meeting because the sector was so out of favor for the first time i can say with confidence that um, the, the the institutions the funds are asking questions they're calling they're bargain hunting that to me is a sign that the market's going to turn where is the money going to go when the market does turn it's not going to go into the companies with early stage assets it's going to go into the companies like columbus that have an existing resource a large resource that looks like it's going to get a lot bigger and um, we we all we're also drilling and working and most juniors are not doing that right now or not spending any money
3: all right. Exactly right.
1: So my uh my I suppose my closing remark is that if you you believe the market's bottomed out for gold and you think it's gonna turn around,
3: Columbus is the sort of company you want to be looking at, at this stage. Well I, I- Totally agree with you on that, uh, Robert. I really do, and I and I think also your point that maybe we've bottomed does make some sense because I'm actually seeing some of the shares uh, get a bid under them now, and and some nice green days on the screen even when the market isn't behaving that well, the gold market that is. So, I I, I sure hope you're right because it will mean uh, a lot better times for uh, for the companies that I follow. That's for sure. But I, I think you I think you are, and I want to thank you very much. Your website. We should mention, I didn't mention it, I guess it's Columbus Gold. People can just Google Columbus Gold and get it. Uh, They can indeed. It's um, it's actually ColumbusGoldCorp.com. Okay, excellent. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Robert, for being with us today. Folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but uh, we'll be talking to you again, Robert, sometime soon, I hope. Folks, don't go away, uh, because as soon as we come back from the break, I'm going to be talking to Clark Neely. He's a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, uh, and that is a nonprofit organization that litigates against overreaching government. Can you believe that? Well, we do talk about that from time to time on this show, uh, so I'm looking, very, uh, looking forward very much to speaking to attorney Clark Neely. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
0: Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500 meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Juhui province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network.
2: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome
3: back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host Jay Taylor and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Clark Neely. Uh he is an attorney uh that has uh, joined the Institute for Justice uh as that uh, organization's senior attorney. Uh he has been with them since 2000 uh since the year 2000. He litigates economic liberty, property rights, school choice, first amendment and other constitutional cases in both federal and state courts and uh he has represented um uh, parents and children in defense of florida's opportunities scholarship program uh and school choice programs in arizona maine and milwaukee and he's done a whole lot of other things uh he's written a book recently uh the terms of engagement how our courts should enforce the constitution's promise of limited government Uh, and in his private capacity, he served as co-counsel for the plaintiffs of D.C. versus Heller, in which the Supreme Court announced for the first time that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun for self-defense. Welcome, uh, Clark, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
4: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on.
3: It's really good to have you on. I uh, certainly believe that uh, the value system and the things that Uh, The institute uh, that you work for stands for is very much in in keeping with the values that are espoused on this show. Certainly the values of many, if not most, of our guests. Ron Paul has been with us in the past a few times. Uh, And so the right, property rights, the right to be free, which is what our founding fathers uh, risked their lives to give us. And I think uh, sometimes I wonder to what extent people really are aware that we are losing our liberties. And one of the reasons I asked that question is last week, uh, on this show, I played a uh, a speech by President Kennedy, a 1961 speech that he gave in front of the Newspaper Association, uh, in which he talked about. He was really describing the Soviet Union, and you know some of the things he said is he says um, in speaking of the Soviet Union, he says they uh, they operate by infiltration rather than invasion, by subordination rather than elections, by intimidation rather than free choice, by guerrillas by night rather than armies by day. In other words, a secret society uh, uh, and a lot of things going on behind the scenes that people seem not to even be aware of. And it seems to me, as you know, as a guy that's old enough to remember what the Soviet Union was like and the propaganda that we had against the Soviets in those days, when I look back and now I see the revelations that come out from the Snow you know, from Snowden and other things that are taking place now, I, I have to say as I listen to that speech, it seems to me that we look more like the Soviet Union now than, than, I, than I could have ever imagined back in 1961. So the question I have for you is, and well, maybe you agree or disagree with that, but to what extent do you think the American people are even aware that they're losing their freedoms?
4: Well, I think they're aware in a kind of a general sense. If you look at recent polls, uh, they they show that, that, that most people, a significant majority of people think that the government has gotten too big and that it does too many things that should be left to private individuals or businesses. So I think on a, on a, a sort of a high level, people recognize that government is too big and too intrusive. Uh, the problem, though, I think is, is, you know, down at the level of practicality, uh, what do people think about, uh, how we should respond to that fact and, you know, whether the government should be prevented from getting any into any particular area of their lives. And as we all know, the government often finds a way to sort of bribe its way into your life by offering benefits, by offering uh, tax credits, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, finds a way to insinuate itself into parts of our life that where it has no business. And what we really need is what I call in the book, Terms of Engagement, a properly engaged judiciary that is serious about enforcing constitutional limits on government power. And the thing I think hopefully will shock and, and, and dismay many of your readers or your listeners and get them to really try and get out there and make changes, we don't have that. We don't have a judiciary that is seriously committed to enforcing constitutional limits on government power. And that's why we
3: have government gone wild. But why is that? I mean, certainly... All of the judges that are there know and understand the three stools of, of government. They understand how, there's, how the different, the three branches of government are supposed to keep each other in check. Why are they ignoring the Constitution?
4: I think there's a few different reasons. From a historical standpoint, of course, we had um, an incredibly activist government in the 1930s with the New Deal, and at first the Supreme Court tried to hold the line and confine the federal government to its constitutionally authorized Mm -hmm. powers, and those powers do not remotely allow the federal government to take control of the national economy from the top down, but that's what President Roosevelt and the Democrats in Congress wanted to do at the time, and they basically Bullied the Supreme Court into uh, uh, refusing to hold the line anymore. And so the Supreme Court essentially said, all right, you know what? From now on, We're not really going to be in the business of of trying to enforce constitutional limits on uh, federal power. And then the rest kind of fell in a a series of dominoes. The Supreme Court also uh, threw economic liberty and property rights off the back of the constitutional sled to allow government to micromanage not just the federal uh, national economy, but down at the state and the local level. And so it's become kind of um, uh, just a part of the regular scenery. It's a regular feature of American constitutional law that courts do nothing. And say yes to government in the vast majority of cases, including particularly cases involving taxes business regulations, property rights, and so forth and uh, it really has just become a habit
3: it's become a habit I, I just I still can't quite understand why they were intimidated why the why the executive branch was able to intimidate the judiciary as it was and um, I, I, I guess maybe it's just that um, there are pressures bribery who knows I, I don't know I'm just well, trying to
4: You know, President Roosevelt did threaten to pack the court with up to six more justices in order to uh, uh, essentially get the majority that he needed to, uh, you know, basically stop striking down his uh, nationalizing legislation. So that may have been part of it. But I think another part of it was just that the court perceived that the public um, didn't want the court to patrol the line anymore, at least during that era. And although that has changed, and now the public does want the courts back in the business of enforcing constitutional limits on government, and power. I think the courts have just gotten very comfortable with a kind of a dog ate my homework approach to judging, where they they essentially uh, create a dichotomy between rights that courts consider to be fundamental, and those are just a small handful—the right to you know free speech. Free mm-hmm. exercise of religion in some cases. And then every other right that you might care about, including the right to earn a living and, and, and uh, run a business. And the court considers those, the Supreme Court considers those to be what it calls non-fundamental rights, not entitled to any meaningful judicial protection at all. And property rights as well, not entitled to any meaningful protection as far as the Supreme Court is concerned.
3: Yeah, and those are the kinds of deals, uh, kind of, uh, cases that your Institute for Justice has taken on, I believe. I, I know there's one, uh, 2005, uh, Callow versus the city of New London, Connecticut. Right. I remember hearing something about that in the news, uh, where they, the city wanted to tear down a bunch of houses and build up, uh, more exclusive, high-end, uh, condominiums, I guess, or, or houses of some kind in yep. Connecticut, what that was, right? And you, you took that, uh, your institute took that case on, did they? we did uh, so this this case Kilo v. City
4: of New London involved the use of, of eminent domain which is a power that the government has to take private property even against the will of the owner for a public use that's what it says in the fifth amendment of the constitution public mm-hmm. use now government being what it is of course they are constantly pushing the boundaries of what constitutes a public use so a highway of course a school yes maybe even a private hospital if it serves the public uh, you know uh, land. For uh, railroad tracks so trains can go straight. Mm-hmm. All of those things are are within the, the reasonable bounds of what was meant in the Constitution. But here's what they did in the city of New London case. New London wanted to, to bulldoze an entire working class neighborhood simply to replace those homes with more expensive townhouses for Pfizer executives. Pfizer had a research facility right next door. And to build a four star hotel and a river walk in the hopes that this would sort of revive the city's economy. The question was does simply trying to increase your tax base by moving one set of taxpayers off the land and bringing in what you hope will be, you know, a wealthier class of people. um, Does that count as a public use that would enable the government to use eminent domain to take those people's property against their will? And the answer, of course, is no, not remotely, but the U.S. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court in the habit of, of failing to go to bat for property rights, uh, rubber-stamped it, five to four decisions said, yep, that's fine, you can take those properties against those people's will, bulldoze them and give them to people who are wealthier in the mere hopes that you might raise the tax base, and it never materialized. What they have up there in New London now is a 90-acre brownfield. The only jobs that were created by that project were for the bulldozer operators who, who bulldozed uh, the, the owner's homes, and nothing was ever put in their place. It was a
3: disaster. That's incredible. And it sounds to me like fascism. I'm, I, I know that, that maybe I'm, I'm being a little bit loose with my definitions, but when corporations are able to influence government to that extent for their own – it didn't even work out, as you're saying. It, it was a disaster. It was a bigger disaster for the people that got thrown off their properties, I suppose.
4: Yeah, it was. And it was, you know, it was a disaster for constitutionally limited government as well. Right. Um, those people more more importantly. Going- Right. Those people will go on with their lives. They suffered a terrible injustice, and I know them well. They're friends of mine. My heart goes out to them, but they are strong, resilient people, and they will go on with their lives. Um, What what is even more concerning is the damage that was done to the rule of law I don't you know it, whether you want to call it fascism you want to call it socialism it doesn't matter there is a bright line distinction between America and most of the countries that exist in the world today and that have ever existed and that is our commitment to rule of law and when you get decisions like the Kelo decision where the Supreme Court rubber stamps the government's theft of private property for this crazy theory that maybe they can make more money by putting you know wealthy ex- executives where those uh, working-class people used to live, that is a blatant violation of the rule of law, and that puts us on the path to tyranny.
3: Make no mistake about it. It sure does. It, it seems like it, and this is just one of many cases that your institute has, has taken on. Another one I, I believe you took on was uh, involving a California woman who was very, very ill, uh, and um, the federal government tried to stop her from using medicinal uh, marijuana. Could you comment on that?
4: Yeah, that was actually not an Institute for Justice case, but it's very much uh, you know an area that we care about, limiting uh, the power of government. It was actually litigated by a good friend of ours, Professor Randy Barnett, uh, who's a prof- law professor at Georgetown University. And in a nutshell, what that case was, it was a test case that was designed to see whether the Supreme Court would enforce any limits on the power of the federal government. Uh, as you may know. The uh, genius, One of the genius designs of the U.S. Constitution was to create a federal government but then only delegate to the federal government certain enumerated powers, things that are listed in the Constitution like creating a system of weights and measures, a post office, a standing army. Beyond those handful of enumerated powers, the federal government wasn't supposed to have the power to do anything. Now, what it, uh, during the New Deal, the Supreme Court uh, accepted a, a, a kind of a, um, elastic theory of federal power where essentially, if the government could connect its regulation to anything having to do with commerce, uh, then the Supreme Court would rubber stamp whatever so and this included by the way, prohibiting a farmer in Ohio from growing wheat on his own property and feeding it to his own farm animals uh, because he was um, not he was growing more wheat than the federal government was, was allocating to him. Now, oh. update that. That was 1942. Update it to um, uh, the, the year 2000. And what you had was out in California, you had these uh, two women who were very sick. The only thing that would give them any relief was um, uh, medicinal marijuana. It was legal for a doctor to prescribe that in California, which he did. Mm-hmm. And, but there's still a federal law that makes it a crime to possess marijuana. This marijuana that was given to them, by the way, was grown Homegrown and then given to them. So there's no commerce and it Mm. never crossed state lines. Question, can the federal government regulate their possession of this non-commercially grown marijuana that never crossed state lines under its <laughs> interstate commerce power? And the answer the Supreme Court said was yes. In a 6-3 to three k- uh, decision called Raich, the Supreme Court said that is a valid exercise of the interstate commerce power. That was a farce and a disgrace of a decision. Um, but it essentially shows that when the chips are down and push comes to shove, the Supreme Court will side with the government uh, and instead of the Constitution. And that is what has set us on this road to uh, a violation of the rule of law and uh, the government gone wild.
3: What was the logic for, uh, for
4: that, though? <laughs> how, how, what was their logic? I, um, I think that might be a charitable way to describe the opinion, yeah. but if there is some logic to the opinion, the idea was essentially that the federal government wishes to control the entire national market for uh, uh, illicit drugs, in this case marijuana, and when they say control, what they really mean is prohibit. So it took as a, a given that the federal government has the constitutional authority to outlaw any given uh, product, uh, in this case, again, marijuana, and then uh, reasons that, well, if states are uh, allowed to, or if people within the states are allowed to give marijuana to other people, then that would undermine this national uh, ban, and uh, one, one of the things that's really ludicrous about that reasoning by the way, is... We've already been down that road. We had national prohibition of alcohol uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and Mm -hmm. everybody understood that in order to have national prohibition of alcohol, the Constitution had to be amended to give the federal government that power. But Mm -hmm. again, fast forward uh, 100 years, and what we have now is the federal government maintaining prohibitions on all kinds of uh, substances with no constitutional amendment and no coherent constitutional theory for doing so, just a Supreme Court that's willing to rubber stamp virtually anything the federal government does, including most recently forcing people to buy government-approved health insurance despite the fact they don't have any constitutional authority to enforce that law
3: but they've ruled uh, in favor of it. So They did, that's right.
4: Five to four last year, the Supreme Court rubber-stamped the Affordable Care Act and said that let's not be too concerned about what powers the uh, Constitution actually gives to the federal government. If we can put on our our crazy thinking caps and bend over backwards to imagine some way to confer this power upon the federal government, we'll do it. In fact, we're obliged to do it, according to Chief Justice Roberts in his opinion. Uh, And so they did. And now we are reaping the harvest, the bitter harvest, uh, of that lawless decision from a year ago. And and we still don't know what the cost to this country will be in dollars um, and in damage to the rule of law because the Supreme Court upheld that blatantly on constitutional law one year ago.
3: And importantly, I think it's going to be how... Those results are assessed and reported by the press, too, will be very important because, uh, you know, people can see things the way they want to, obviously, um, it, including Supreme Court justices, which pro- proves to me that the Supreme Court is not really supreme.
4: Well, there's an interesting point that you make there, and I think what needs to happen is we've got to transform the judiciary from being a go-along, get-along judiciary, which is what we have today. They rubber-stamp virtually everything that the government does. Um, I'll give you one statistic. Uh, We looked in between 1954 and 2002 – the federal government enacted 15,817 laws, of which the Supreme Court struck down just 103. That's two-thirds of 1%. So this court is asleep at the bench. It rubber stamps virtually everything. And and how much longer can we go on with a federal government that neither acknowledges nor is held to any um, meaningful constitutional limits on its own power? Um, I think the time is running out. We need a more engaged judiciary, and that's what I argue for in the book.
3: No, I mean, I was talking about uh, thinking about how President Kennedy's speech and how we sounded so much like the Soviet Union. When you give those kind of numbers, 103 out of 15,817, it sounds pretty much like the same thing. Um, you mentioned, uh, I, I'm wondering, getting back to this California case, the uh, marijuana case does that Is that a state's rights issue, and are we going to see more of those kind of situations where the federal government overpowers the states? I mean certainly the healthcare care situation is going to have some uh the um, affordable health care thing is going to have some states' issues I would think pop up here right
4: absolutely uh I, you know i don't generally myself i don't use the term states rights because i don't think that the government has rights the government only has powers and but mm-hmm. it is a, it is a very important point and that is that the the uh among the central designs of the us constitution was to leave most policy making uh decisions to the states to push it down to the mm-hmm. local level and only give the federal government the power uh to regulate in a very small handful of areas where we we need where we have to have uh you know a, a truly national government running the army for example um, having a national system um, you know post roads and post offices weights and measures that kind of thing um, so you're exactly right uh, the the federal government has essentially um, uh, occupied the field here instead of allowing the states to experiment with different policies and different approaches to the very very complicated problem of health care uh, the federal government has essentially just jumped in uh, with a program that we now know is a disaster I mean we you could you could certainly see this train wreck coming three or four four years ago, but it's here. And we, we mm-hmm. and, and so but of course if this had been confined to one particular state, if it had been Massachusetts or New York or California, everybody could look at it and say, Well jeez, I'm glad we dodged that bullet. What a train mm-hmm. wreck. But of course now every single state in the country and every single individual in the country has to in essence uh, share the consequences of this really uh, unfortunate policy choice that was made by a bunch of people who I think it is now really apparent had no appreciation for the complexity of the task that they were taking on no appreciation for the many different uh, you you know, unintended consequences and internal dynamics that they unleashed Uh, and so uh, as I said before we're now reaping the bitter harvest of, uh, of one of the most glaring examples of judicial abdication in the last 75 years and that was the upholding of the Affordable Care Act, a terrible, terrible, and I would even go so far as to say, irresponsible and indefensible decision.
3: You know, Clark, we're almost out of time. I can't believe uh, it's gone so fast, but I have to ask you about your book. Yeah. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about your book and and why people should should buy it, why they should be What could it, you know, what could it mean for people, for average people?
4: Well here's the bottom line. The book was written so that the average person who who sees government out of control, who who feels like there's this huge difference between what they understood the Constitution to mean and what government has become and is looking for some explanation of how that could have happened. This book was written for that person. You don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to know anything about constitutional law. I do my best to lay it out with engaging and interesting stories to illustrate the points. And if you will sit down for three or four hours with this book by the time you get done reading it you will be you will not only understand how we got so far off the rails but you'll also appreciate what needs to be done to get America back on track in the direction of truly constitutional government in the direction of the rule of law and what it comes down to one thing we need judges who will enforce constitutional limits on government power i call that an engaged judiciary we need it we're entitled to it and we have to go out and demand it
3: will your uh, book cause people to uh, will stir them up and get them mad as hell and they won't take it anymore and and demand changes? Yeah, I hope so, but only because I'm
4: showing what's going on, not because of any argument I'm making, not because I'm trying to get people riled up. All I'm saying Mm -hmm. is this is going on day in and day out. Judges are, are systematically refusing to enforce constitutional limits on government power. And if you wonder why we've got government out of control, that's why the third branch of government systematically abdicating its responsibility to enforce mm-hmm. limits on government power. So if you want to know why and you want to know what you can do about it, please check out the book, Terms of Engagement. You can see uh, links, links to it are on our website, www.ij.org, or you can find it on Amazon.
3: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, uh, Clark. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today. It's very, very fascinating uh, Maybe we can have you back again sometime and talk more about these, I think, extremely important issues. So well, thank you very much for being with us.
4: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity.
3: Well, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back after uh, the commercial break. Uh, Peter Grandich will be with me to tell me how he is planning his financial uh, his finances these days in light of the ongoing economic problems uh, that, was, uh, that that we are all facing. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Grandich.